0: So Lisa, you know, I am always excited when we get some form of communication from our listeners, whether it's a voice note, a email, a text, you name it. And we got, we got one this week. I was very excited uh, when one of my teammates, Heather, reached out to me and said, I really want to know where is the line between being an ally and being a white savior as a white person. Hmm. And I had no good Like, usually I can uh, give something academic to help folks out, but not my superpower when it came to this one. And so I thought we should definitely, uh, you know, throw this around to kind of Uh figure out what's going on. But it's a good one. That's a great question, Heather.
1: Oh, gosh, it is a great question. And I also, too, do not have an immediate answer for that. And I have a feeling we're not going to come out the other end of this conversation with Mm. a really straightforward answer either. So let's dive in.
0: I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa a white savior. I I think it's really interesting when I started looking up some of the definitions because I wanted to give more of a, a firm scholarly definition to what a white savior is. And I thought it was really interesting because it was kind of like this overlap between white savior characteristics and white savior complex, which are kind of two different things. But when I looked this up, white savior meant that a white person provides help to a non-white person in a self-serving manner where a person is in a state of mind and holds the belief that they're destined to become a savior from somewhere from for someone else either now or in the future and so you know i thought the definition was really interesting because once again who are we centering lisa we talk about this all the time who's being centered
1: yeah right yep
0: that sounds like it's not the people that are being
2: served.
1: Right. I agree. It actually makes me think of, um, inspiration porn. <laughs> um, you know, and we've talked about that several mm. times, but in this, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm viewing the accomplishments of this individual who has a disability as a tool for my inspiration. And if they can do it, I can do it too. And so mm-hmm. it's using someone else's, um, challenges in an environment that is not set up for disabled people to my benefit Mm -hmm. right and so this white savior is also like I am a white person I am equipped with the skills and the knowledge to save this individual and it may not be categorized like that in your brain but like Mm -hmm. I can do this and so I know best mother knows best right (laughs) And I'm right, going right, right. to fix this issue and then I'm going to feel really good about it. Look, look how good I am. Look what I did. And I'm going to talk about it at all those dinner parties or, you know, in the Starbucks line or something.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. And so it's like the the pat on the back, if you will, they're they uh-huh. are not doing it to serve a group. They're doing it because they want to take the selfie afterwards and do the pat on the back. And that does not seem to be the route to go when it comes to this. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. still not centering the people being served, but the person who wants kind of this feel good moment as an yeah. outcome of doing this. Yeah. And that sucks. That, I, that sucks. I mean, come on.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, but I wonder, like, how conscious is that, right? Because I've certainly donated money to organizations and I felt good about it, but that isn't necessarily my conscious motivation for donating the money or for volunteering Mm. a day of my time Mm -hmm. you know so I think that it's not that straightforward like we're not suggesting that white saviors know that they're white saviors right that's right a lot of this stuff is happening at a subconscious level because of the messages we're taught growing up around white supremacy and how white people are better in the hierarchy, right? So obviously mm-hmm. they don't have all the answers, but, it, and, and mm-hmm. so to your point, it doesn't center the communities that they're allegedly helping. And often those solutions are born out of um, an assumption about what a community needs versus actually asking said community, mm. what would be helpful, right? And maybe mm-hmm. what would be helpful would be me butting
0: out. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Right. Well, and okay. Go with me here, Lisa, because I think (laughs) this is interesting. I mean, we can go further with, you know, the thought patterns, even with those that are thinking in the direction of a white savior. I'm, I've done enough work where, for example, most of my work that I've done, um, especially when I've worked with, you know, higher education institutions, setting up alternative spring breaks, definitely working in campus ministry, you're doing mission trips quite a bit, multiple times a year. And most of my work has been um, in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. And as a non-white person serving other non-white people in New Orleans, um, St. Bernard Parish in particular, where it was really rough down there. What I thought was really interesting was that I walked away asking the question, who's saving who here? Like, you know, I realized that, you know, the majority of the students I was taking down on these trips were, they identified as white. And as we walked away from the experience, I'm not saying that the folks that they were serving saved them from white privilege, but they were kind of grasping this mentality of, oh, I need to learn more about their lives and their experiences and who they are and what's their history in this area of the country that I've never experienced before. And so it's less about, oh, let me come in and be Santa Claus and drop off some gifts and some money and do a little bit of work on your house and walk away. It's I'm, Coming with a few things, you're actually coming with a ton of things as someone being served. And I get the the blessing or the benefit or the privilege of walking away with greater knowledge and understanding of a group. So I'm like, who the hell is serving who here? Because that's what I think is yeah. appropriate allyship. But usually the service piece of it is only going one way. And so, right. Right. you know. I'm sure you could probably recall some situations where, you know, you may have gone in to, you know, do some work or to give or volunteer with an organization. And as a very conscious and intentional person, you have to have walked away with more than you walked in with. Let me just put it there. Let me just put it there. It it has to happen if you're conscious and intentional about your work.
1: Yeah. And I certainly haven't always been conscious and intentional and I still absolutely miss things. And I do think I grapple with this white savior allyship very much, especially in the field of social work, you know, where the guiding Mm. for most people who enter social work, regardless of their racial identity, um, is they want to help people. And, you know, I would argue that wanting to help people uncritically really pushes you over into, if you're white, a white savior. And if you're not into kind of the savior mentality where you think you know better. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there needs to be some critical thought around the solutions that you're offering and how you came to those decisions, you know, and we saw a ton of this in endurance sport in 2020 and in early 2021 with money being given to various um organizations or trying to Mm -hmm. tackle the issue of a lack of racial diversity in um triathlon in particular and in cycling and so you know what Mm can be done and sometimes it kind of devolved a little bit into maybe we can just buy communities of color bikes right and i think that that feels less about what you're suggesting right that there's this right. we're going to give you something that we think you need right. but there's no I'm not taking it other than my self-satisfaction of being a good person pat on the back I'm not really mm-hmm. I'm not going to the root of what of the problem or understanding that maybe giving kids bikes in a busy city community for example it's not actually very safe <sighs> Right. right, and so right. People, oh, right. you want
0: your kid riding to school because right. of all the cars or something, right? right. exactly. And it, it reminds me because I, I worked with an organization, and it's and it's been my running joke for a long time when it comes to doing diversity to people rather than doing diversity with people, where the organization, mm-hmm. um, which after I looked at some of the demographics, you know, the stereotype of very heavily white and male near the top and more diverse closer to the bottom. And it was their policy for years to give out the turkeys for Thanksgiving, right? Now, I'm not even going to go into the intricacies of, you know, nutrition and all those other things and people have different needs and desires, all that. Just the notion when you give a turkey, and I know this sounds so trivial, but it's not. When you give someone a whole turkey, notwithstanding nutritional situations, what do you need when you have a turkey? You probably need some type of refrigeration beforehand. You need an oven if you're going to cook it. You need pots and pans to do whatever, you know, doctoring up you're going to do of the bird. All these other things that you're assuming someone has when that may not be their case. This person may be literally camping out on someone's couch and they may not have a home to call their own or let's say they're on their own and they don't have a family so why would you need a whole ass turkey for one person just just so many things where again you're doing what's thoughtful to you, you're doing it to that person rather than reaching out to say, what do you really need? Maybe that person really needs more money on their check this week because they need to get home or they need to go check on a family member that's not doing well or what have you. And I feel, I know that's being trivial talking about the turkeys and Thanksgiving, but I feel like the endurance sport community does that very often as well with the whole bike thing, or even Mm -hmm. with volunteerism, if you don't know that community pretty intimately. And so again, you're doing diversity to people and they're looking like, we don't, this is so Mm -hmm. low on my list of needs right now. This may make you feel good, but it does not make me feel good.
1: Yeah. It's a great example to illustrate the problem, I think, because really, you know, outside of your, your kind of like narrow nutritional piece that you just uh, mentioned, like turkeys don't do shit for people, right? Like Turkey isn't a over the head it's not groceries for a week it's not transportation to school it's not um having enough that's right that you don't need to work three jobs right like yeah I mean it's it's kind of ridiculous really and I think about yeah um, yeah how you know I've definitely donated turkeys to um shelters for people without um houses right and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, and sure the, the the shelters put out that they want that so they can give everyone a, a Thanksgiving right. dinner, but right again, like not useful, not useful, right? Not at all, and, not um, at all. And so there's that, um, what's that Martin Luther King quote, which I think encapsulates kind of what um, you're talking mm-hmm. about here with Turkey's?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, I found one, this was a week or so ago, where Dr. King said, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropists to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice that make philanthropy necessary. And I loved that quote. I mean, just getting to the root of that problem. We, we don't do that well, myself included. We don't always get to the mm-hmm. root of mm-hmm. the need well. And so, you know, connecting that to better allyship, that I think that's the key. That's the key.
1: Yeah, for me, that is allyship versus white saviorism right there,
0: right? Mm, Allys- okay, allyship. Okay. Recognizes
1: that I do have maybe some wealth and I can contribute financially to this cause, or I can th- contribute my time. Right. And this um, issue that I'm currently dealing with is a product of a larger systemic problem that I'm also going to work on, like economic yes, and the economic yes, industry. yes, yes. Whereas white saviorship is here, have my money, have some of my time, and then I'm going to walk away and feel good about myself. Maybe I'll post on Instagram that I did this thing, right, right, right. Um, right. Right, You know, and so I would say, you know, the circumstances of economic injustice to use Dr. King's example, you know, so do you support, you know, the Build Back Better Act? Do you support Mm. infrastructure? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are acts that would create paid family leave, which is a huge issue and a huge problem in terms of low income folks, right? Right. Like, so what are you doing? Mm -hmm there because giving a low-income family's kid a bike is cool but it doesn't yes. change their material reality where maybe they are not it's not safe to ride the bike they don't have time to ride the bike right like
0: right, it's not right. A
1: priority to be riding a bike
0: and a bike frankly in the wrong neighborhood may cause the child to then be a target of violence if someone right. wants to take the bike from them right and I'm not feeding into stereotypes I'm just feeding into facts I mean that's Part of the reason why, for example, in certain areas of the country, and I know there's much more history to this, we won't go all the way down that rabbit hole, but for example, there's certain areas of the country that still wear, kids still wear uniforms to school. They may not wear certain types of shoes, et cetera, because they become a target for violence against them because someone may want or need what they have. And so therefore they've standardized certain things. So, you know, every time I hear about, and, and again, we're not saying don't give the bikes. Lisa and Shauna are not saying necessarily don't give the bikes. What we are saying though is be a little more intentional about the exploration piece of what do people actually need in the community where you're racing and training. Then make your determination. It, it's it's kind of like Lisa when I think a lot of people have been here, whether it's a holiday or birthday, what have you. Lisa, let's say you've made it clear to me you've got, I don't know, maybe three or four things that you need and your birthday's coming up, for example, Let, let's just pick an easy holiday. And I disregard what you've told me out of those three things that you need. And I'm just going to give you what I wanted you to have. And you're like, Shauna, you gave me uh, pearl earrings and a pearl necklace and a bracelet, but I don't know what I'm going to eat tonight. That's what the bikes feel like to me. <laughs> right. Right. It's like skipping over the need of the the person who should be centered. And now it's feeding into my need or our need or the white savior's need to feel a certain way based on the gift that was given. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Pearl, a pearl, a set of pearl earrings, necklace, and bracelet is much more sexy on your Instagram than making sure that Lisa eats well tonight. That's more sexy. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks, man. No, that, that is, Mm -hmm. that is not allyship. That is selfish. Let me just throw that out there. To me, that's selfish. I can't even make up a better academic word for it. It, To me, that's selfishness because it's about yourself and not about the receiver.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I think now I'm like, oh, well, I like to get people gifts that they wouldn't usually get themselves. Um, you know, because it makes them, you know, I like the smile on their face and I'm like, oh my God, you've just transformed my whole thought about, gift giving." Uh,
0: but, but well, no, let me, let me walk that back a little bit though, Lisa, because the people that you're speaking to probably know where they're getting their next meal and their roof is over their head. And, you know, but if we're talking about people that, you know, they don't have very much on that bottom rung of, of Maslow's needs, then it's a different conversation then. Yeah. You
1: know, and so then I, I also think this really throws into question this idea of white saviorism versus allyship. Um
0: mm-hmm. kind of
1: these even this larger, I don't know that arrogance is the white word. That might be too harsh, but this kind of mm-hmm. um overriding belief that um, you know, the there are so many sports that need to be diversified, yes. And I agree that sport is a human mm-hmm. right and everyone should have access to it. But if we're Mm-mm. starting to put access to sport above some of these other more important social issues, are we really just, um, yeah. we're really yeah. just not changing the situation, right? Because to be able to engage fully in sport, you need to have the financial freedom to do that. You need to have the time to do that. You need to have the support to do that. And so many folks
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in communities that endurance sport, organizations might be looking at for charitable donations or support don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have that and so it's like you're jumping ahead nine steps to get you know but they you know they can't engage because these other basic and not even like maslow's hierarchy of needs necessarily but just like you know i i Mm -hmm. you know i live in a multi-generational home my grandmother Mm -hmm. is still alive and they're sick. And I have to look after them as well as I have to look after my kids. And I like to be active and I want to be active, but I literally don't have enough time in the day. Like encouraging me to join a triathlon club, a cycling club, a run club doesn't change all those additional pulls on my time. What changes those pulls on my time is a better social safety net,
0: right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, the reason why I started to giggle, Lisa, as you were explaining that it's a visual that came out, Right when uh, Juneteenth became a federal holiday here in the U S and it was a staircase. I don't even remember if I sent that one to you or not, Lisa, we share so much across text, but it was a staircase where each rung of the staircase had a different need on it all the way up to the top staircase. And what was so powerful about it was there was this person that was taking a huge leap from the bottom of the staircase, which was basic human rights, like, you know, um, education or clean water, you know, all these other things, um, especially in Black communities, you know, better schools, teachers that stay and have a longer tenure because they are paid well, those things. All of those were like the bottom steps to the run. And we're just going to jump all the way over to Juneteenth. And I loved that visual because it was like, thank you for Juneteenth, but we still didn't, and still, yeah. to my knowledge, yeah. don't have anti-lynching laws in this country. And, you know, all these other things mm-hmm. that are connected to basic humanity of Blackness, but we're going right. to have a holiday anyway. That's how I feel about when it comes to endurance mm-hmm. sport is that we jump over a whole bunch of steps that we need to take that are more fundamental. And so I, I think that's the, the white whites saviors are jumping to the top step when we need the allies to take those steps in between. Yes,
1: Yes. because that top step is a lower hanging fruit, so it's easier, right? It's easier to have kind of some immediate gratification, some immediate pat on the back opportunity. That's right.
0: Whereas the change Mm -hmm. that
1: really needs to happen that's going to really fundamentally crack open sport and make it more accessible to all is much more embedded and difficult to change, right? And takes- Oh, yeah day-to-day ongoing commitment from a broad group of people to push
0: and push and push until systems change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's much, it's much more sexy to buy the little kids in the neighborhoods, the bikes, rather than to write your congressperson about gender equity and pay equity. That's not sexy to people. Right. So that more women can afford to be in the sport yeah. and have access to the sport. And oh, child care. Oh, medical care. Because God forbid, knock on wood, you know, you get hurt while you're training on racing. Some people cannot afford to train or race because yep. they don't have health care. Yep. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on. And so, you know, that top step is the sexy step of that performative white savior when really we need less white Fewer white saviors and more allyship, and we know the allyship is not sexy, and that's okay.
1: Yeah, and it's because it's harder, right? And oh um, gosh, yes. You know, I think white people in particular want a one, two, three, four step. How can I fix this problem? Um, Mm -hmm. What what money Mm -hmm. can I throw at it? Right, and it's like, well, if you do happen to have billions of dollars, you could, you know, donate to various political campaigns, I suppose, to push your um agenda Mm -hmm. through but you know Mm because we see that happening in other other realms but you know the average Mm -hmm. while the average triathlete and cyclist might be you know upper middle class um and higher (laughs) unlikely to have billions of dollars to throw at things but um right right. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think i think this is just a complicated question right and i'm also thinking about um i think a little bit of hesitation from white people might be um I'm aware of the white savior thing. Right. I understand Mm -hmm. it conceptually and I don't want to be that. Um, But I also want to be an ally. And so I want to step in, in particular situations, or I I do have some financial freedom and I do want to donate that money because Mm -hmm. I think it would be useful, but I don't want to do it wrong. Right. Like I don't want to, um, try and then overstep my bounds and then fuck it up even more
0: right mhm mhm yeah yeah absolutely well you know i think hey, may, maybe the the one of the big takeaways from all of this is you know well maybe two takeaways go with me here lisa i'm building it building the plane as we fly here um i do believe in that platinum rule piece not the golden rule most people have heard of the golden rule do to others the way you would have them do unto you that piece when in fact, that's not the way to go. Treat people the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to treat them. Um, so I think that's that platinum rule is a big piece of the puzzle. But then I think a second piece is the why. So the, the deep root of what you're doing. So for example, if XYZ race event says, we're looking for volunteers to help with XYZ um, rebuilding these homes in this particular area. We're not saying don't do that. We're not saying don't rebuild them, but also explore the why. Why are these homes substandard? Why are these homes not livable? Is there something environmentally that needs to be changed that we need to have a voice on? And so I think that why question starts to get to what Dr. King was mentioning about as far as the root, because Dr. King didn't say don't give and don't be philanthropic the, the quote says to do that, but mm-hmm. don't do it mm-hmm. um, with eyes wide shut. Like, yay, we, I've, I've done my part. As soon as I cut that check, I can walk away and act like it didn't happen. Right. We want to look at the, the fruit of the tree and the root of the tree to kind of figure out what's going on here. So I think, you know, between the platinum rule and the why, the, the consistent why question and all that we do, I, I think that might move the needle a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I would also add to that if you are engaging in a philanthropic or charitable something and then you decide you want to post that on your social media, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that Mm -hmm. might perhaps provide you with um, a window into the why you're doing what you're doing, right? Not the why Mm -hmm. that Shauna just explained, but the why am I doing this? And I think if you are- Um, thinking, this will make a great social media post, or I can't wait Mm -hmm. to tell blankety blank that I did this, then perhaps um, your motivations are not
0: as pure as perhaps you would think that they are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Lisa. Well, I hear that we have an, (laughs) once again, incredible hell yeah and hell nah for today. Do you want to dive in?
1: Sure thing. Hell yeah.
0: Hell no. Well, one of my favorites uh, is the crown act. And I absolutely love the crown act because uh, fortunately I have not been on that side of the coin in regards to um, hair discrimination, uh, where I've been in the workplace and someone has told me I cannot wear my hair a certain way, or my hair is quote unquote, unprofessional for this setting, et cetera. But There are a lot of people from my identity groups who have experienced that. And so as I was listening, uh, big kudos and hell yeah to the company Dove. Kudos to y'all because Dove has a petition that they're asking folks to sign because their goal or their vision is that they want all beauty to be welcome in all places and in all institutions. And Dove produces a lot of beauty products whether it's, you know, shower gel or shampoo, etc. and I was so appreciative of hearing about what Dove was doing uh, in, in regards to co-founding what's called the Crown Coalition. And that coalition is to advance anti-hair discrimination legislation around the country. Now, I don't know if y'all know these, I just wanna share this quick uh, data point with them, Lisa. Um, So for listeners, in case you didn't know, a black woman is 80% more likely to change her natural hair to meet social norms or expectations at work. And black women are 1.5 times more likely to be sent home or know a Black woman sent home from the workplace because of her hair. So given that, there's been a lot of work around the Crown Act. In fact, um, uh, the Crown Coalition or the bill itself, the Crown Act, uh, became law in California in 2019. But now it's in seven states, including our states, Lisa, Colorado, uh, and Maryland. But we want it to happen across the country. We want it to happen everywhere. So kudos and hell yeah to Dove. For being in the right place when it comes to women like me who every day have to think Mm -hmm. about whether they can wear their hair naturally, the way it grows out of their scalp uh, without offending someone or, frankly, without being harassed by their own organization in regards to how they naturally look. Mm -hmm. So kudos, Mm -hmm. Dove. Y'all are doing it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And the fact that we even
1: need the Crown Act is probably a good hell nah, right? I have another one for hell nah, but I'm like, why do we even need it? Like, what the F, right? What the F is wrong with people? Oh, exactly. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) I'm just like, oh my gosh. Okay. So hell nah, this is a, this is a a lesson. I think this hell nah around. Yes. Yes. As you know, Shauna and I are big up on data, um, but you have to think about how you present the data because otherwise you might be running with your tail between your legs in the other direction because you get called out. So University of Maryland um, recently published a graphic, a statistical graphic with the intention of demonstrating um, the uh, differential enrollment and retention rates for historically marginalized communities or student groups who would be attending University of Maryland. But what they did in illustrating this is they grouped students of color minus Asian together. And then the second group was white and Asian students. And so understandably, um, there's been some pushback around this, particularly from the Asian American community, Asian uh, Student Alliance that uh, Asian students are utilized um, at the whim of white administrators as and when needed, and that the implication is therefore that Asians are not students of color, right? Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they, you know, de- data is confusing, it's complicated, but you people will fill in the gaps, if you do not give them the context,
0: That's right. they will That's fill right. in the
1: gaps, and they will fill in the gaps in a way that is probably not useful for you. So, you know, from such a a prestigious institution that likely has multiple individuals working on their demographic data and their diversity, equity, and inclusion, they still effed this up, right, in terms of how they um, processed and then shared that information. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard, but it's just, it seems so obvious to me that that was going to come back to bite them, Shauna, like, Really?
0: Well, once again because uh, for for those that know my background, you all know that I worked at the University of Maryland for 10 years, and while I was working there, I worked very closely with the Office of Institutional Research and the good people over there that crunched the data at the time. And given that when I saw this pop up, I was like, wait a minute. No, this is not okay. And yes, at the time and I think still to this day, Um, Those particular offices are predominantly white. However, there are 14 plus diversity offices on that campus that do this work. And so to me, again, I I don't want to sound like I'm letting anyone off the hook because I'm certainly not. My question is, okay, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes, y'all, quote unquote, good white people that work over in institutional research. Did you not think to call not one? of any of the diversity offices on that campus to run this graphic and information past them so that you don't get bitten. Come on. This could have been easily explained Mm -hmm. with a narrative of some sort. Had you consulted a person of color who would have told you that as soon as this hit the news, this was going to be some of the most problematic stuff that might take you a decade to even get past. Right. Because people have a very long memory very long. They mm-hmm. don't forget stuff like this. And so huge hell gnaw on this. I am so sorry uh, to the um, Asian communities and many of my friends that are still at the University of Maryland who know better. Um, clearly, my buddies were not consulted on any of this major problem. I, I, I'm still in shock, Lisa, that the, when you yeah. see something from your previous institution hit like CNN, it ain't good. You, know? <laughs> you know somebody's in trouble, right?
1: Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it, on illi- you. Yeah, it illustrates the intention versus impact piece, right? So their intention was to um, mm-hmm. highlight racial disparities at their mm-hmm. school and say that they're doing something mm-hmm. about it, right? And historically, white students and Asian students are not historically marginalized at the University of Maryland. But because right. they didn't think right. about providing any context, they essentially, you know, clumped groups together that wouldn't historically be together and kind of like de- I want to say decolorized. That's not what I mean, but like they basically like stripped Asian Americans, stripped of, yeah, student right. color identity in the process, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so the impact was pretty painful for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Even though their intention was to be transparent, so
0: absolutely, yeah, it was,
1: kind of, it was just such a stupid mistake that could have easily been avoided. You're right,
0: easily avoided, and so shame on the University of Maryland. Yeah. You know, I know y'all are working hard, and I, I have so many good friends there, but. I still feel very strongly that none of my good buddies were consulted on this one. Uh, kudos yeah. to, uh, to Dove, but uh, shame on you University of Maryland. You got about 10 years of trying to clean that up. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> so so not Sorry. How about that? Sorry. Not sorry. Right. So,
1: so endurance <laughs> sports listeners don't be the university of Maryland. That would be our advice to you Please on don't. this one, but do Please collect don't. data and do share it. Um, so we also exactly. want to hear from you right because today we talked about a listener question and we are all about that and we're hoping to have an episode coming up here in the future where we take a number of your questions and we try and answer them in an episode they're mm-hmm. often more complicated than that so maybe it'll be over several episodes but please do email us info at com, um, or send us Absolutely. a voicemail send us a um, text message contact us on Facebook, Instagram we mm-hmm. would love to hear from you
2: Women have unique physiology and deserve a training plan that honors this. Sign up for the first of its kind women-specific online group training program and join a movement of empowered women ready to harness the power of their physiology. Introducing FICY Triathlon Coaching, led by expert coaches Miranda Bush and Jamila Gale Agins. For just $99 a month, you'll get a monthly women-specific training plan, Zoom rides, AMA sessions, membership to the FICY team, and more. You'll also get a female athlete guide that provides you with the power to better understand your body and how to get the most from your training. Launching December 1st, 2021 with limited spots available. Go to feistytriathlon.com and click the link for coaching so you can be the first to know when it opens and receive a special price for the first four months. That's feistytriathlon.com. The link will also be in the show notes of this episode. The future of women's triathlon training is here. The Unphased Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon.
1: Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit.
0: Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford.
1: Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken
0: Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.